I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 31st, 2020. Because the KGNU studio is closed, we will be replaying some of our favorite interviews. Coming up, an interview with Pete Brown, author of Miracle Brew, the story of how beer is made of four seemingly simple components, but really from an amazing complexity of science and art. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Many of us have been hearing about a variety of proposed treatments for the COVID-19 pandemic that has shut down much of this country and the globe. Although it's too early to determine whether or not any of these will have any real effects, given that there have been no clinical tests, some do show promise based on results from the previous coronavirus outbreak back in 2003, as well as treating other diseases. Currently, the most promising compound for treating COVID-19 is an antiviral called remdesivir. It was originally developed for treating Ebola virus infections and is currently in clinical trials for that disease. To understand why remdesivir could be effective for both viruses, I have to tell you a little bit about how viruses reproduce. As you may know, a virus has to get inside of a host cell in order to reproduce and spread. In last week's show, I described just how the virus gets into the cells in the lungs and other organs that it infects. Once it gets inside, the virus sheds its outer layer and its genetic material is then exposed. In both Ebola and coronaviruses, the genes are made not of DNA, but a related and simpler compound called RNA. Now, it turns out that our cells use RNA, which is made by copying from the DNA of our genes, They use RNA as a message telling the cell how to make a protein. And proteins, of course, are the workhorses and, in fact, the very essence of each and every living creature. Having its genes made of RNA is a clever strategy on the part of the virus. As soon as the RNA emerges in the host cell, it, along with the help of some enzymes also packaged in the virus, takes over the machinery in our cells that will produce proteins from that RNA message. Of course, The proteins that are produced are the ones that are used to make more virus. Now, the other thing the virus has to do in order to reproduce is make more copies of its genes. The virus uses raw materials in the cell to build more of its RNA. In the normal viral life cycle, the host cell is thus subverted into making a batch of new viruses, which will then burst out to infect more cells. This kills the original host cell. Now we can get back to remdesivir. This is a type of drug called a nucleotide analog. This just means it looks a lot like one of the pieces that is used to build the virus RNA, but it's not an exact copy. So when there is remdesivir in an infected cell, it gets used in the viral RNA assembly. Once it's put in place, remdesivir lacks an important piece that would allow the next RNA building block to be added. Think about making a Lego structure. If you add a piece to a growing building, but then that piece doesn't have an attachment for the next piece, you can't keep building. So in the same way, the virus can't make its genetic material and thus can't reproduce. In preclinical trials done in rhesus macaque monkeys, remdesivir was injected intravenously and was shown to be effective as a pretreatment preventing infection. When given 12 hours after infection, the drug was very effective as a therapeutic agent, 
meaning that these monkeys had milder clinical symptoms, low levels of virus replication in their lungs, and fewer and less severe lung lesions or damage. The results are still pretty preliminary, but promising, and human trials are being set up fast. This work was published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The Science of Drying Towels Outside Have you ever wondered why, when you dry your towels outside in the sun, they turn really stiff? Or why some cotton towels and clothing turn stiff, but others do not? Clothes dryers use a lot of energy, and reducing consumption in this area does make one ask, how can we get towels to dry outside without becoming stiff? Researchers from Japan proposed a model for this cotton hardening phenomenon. They tested it and reported their findings in the March 2020 issue of Journal of Physical Chemistry C. This stiffness is caused by single cotton fibers that stick to each other during drying. And the reason these fibers stick to one another is that a small amount of bound water remains on the surface after drying, and it acts as a glue. Cotton is mostly cellulose, a very abundant carbohydrate having a glucose structure. Under normal dry conditions, cotton does contain some water inside the fiber. This is from hydrogen bonding between the water and the cellulose. During drying, there is also surface water on the fiber, and this causes a capillary force to develop between fibers. The force is large enough to cause the single cotton fibers to minimize distance between each other as the water decreases. And that tiny bit of surface water acts like a glue and gives fibers their 3D network. The researchers used atomic force microscopy and IR to show surface water was present on naturally dried cotton fiber and that it has a very distinct bonding state. By contrast, that surface water is not present when they use direct heat in a dryer to dry the towels. These tests explain the mechanical behavior of cotton fabrics and why they are mechanically very stiff when dried outside. There are still a lot of questions to answer, like what kind of fabric softeners work best for eliminating that surface water, but these questions can be answered by doing additional experiments using their approach. Closed dryers use a lot of energy, but by solving this problem, we may be able to reduce energy consumption in this area. And now we present an encore feature from a previous How on Earth show. Don't feel like going home, so I'm gonna sit right here on the edge of this pier and watch the sunset disappear. And drink a beer. The New York Times recently reviewed Miracle Brew, the subject of our interview with its author, Pete Brown. Here's what they said. A magisterial tour of fearsome science and vast brewery history leavened with cheery anecdotes, humor, vivid you-are-there prose, and a clever eye for personality. His rhapsodies about the meaning of life and the meaning of beer are stirring. His expertise and insight will leave you with a glimmer of infinity every time you hold a bottle of it in your hand. Welcome to the show, Pete Brown. It's fascinating information that you've read or that you've written about in your book. So let's start by talking about the four critical components of beer. What are they? 
Yes, I wrote this because uh, beer is the most popular beverage in the world. And very few people know what those four main ingredients are. They are malted barley, hops, uh, yeast, and water. Uh, those are the main four things that, uh, that beer is founded on. And what exactly does it mean to malt barley? I really didn't understand that when I, until I read your book. No, I uh, neither did I, it turns out. I thought I did, and I had it wrong in my head before. Um, but uh, all alcohol comes from um, naturally occurring sugars, mostly. Uh, so when you take fruit, you ferment that, you get wine, you allow uh, yeast to convert the sugars in the fruit to, to alcohol. Uh, if you do that with grain, then you get beer. But grain doesn't want to give up its sugar as easily as uh, fruit does. So... Grain stores the sugar as long-form starch molecules, and it hides them behind a very hard uh, kind of grain wall. And that wall only softens, and enzymes then get released uh, to break down the long starch molecules into sugar molecules when the grain thinks it's about to sprout. So this is when the grain is in very warm, wet, damp conditions, and the grain embryo thinks, excellent, I'm in the ground, it's, about, it's, it's time to grow, and so it uh, softens the wall, and it turns the, the starch to sugar, which it can then use as food while it's growing. So the process of malting is basically to deceive the grain into thinking that it's time to sprout. Uh, so it does all this work for us. It, it turns its starches into sugar and makes them accessible. And then we heat the grain to kill the little grain kernel. Uh, and, uh, and then we've got access to all that sugar. So that sounds so tricky to me to know exactly when to do all those things. Like if you just get grains wet, I know if you leave them for too long, they'll start to mold. And how do you make yeah, sure yeah. that you have just the right amount of sugar in there? I mean, I guess it's it's been a long-term trial and error process. It's been an incredible amount of skill. I mean, uh, you know, the book is called Miracle Brew, and I just kept shaking my head at some of the things I was finding out, just thinking how incredible they are. So as I said, malting is all down to the action of enzymes. Um, enzymes were discovered in 1833 by Anselm Payne, a, a French uh, chemist. And kind of, he figured out that this is the actions that they have. And we've been malting barley for about 10,000 years. So most of the time we've been malting barley, we've had no idea what enzymes are or how our actions are influencing uh, their action. We've just kind of figured it out over literally thousands of years of trial and error. Now that doesn't mean that it's accidental. You know, there's a, there's an awful lot of skill when you when you're in the malting process. There's a a kind of soaking process, but you can't soak it for too long. You have to give it an air rest so it doesn't drown and suffocate. Then you have to malt. You have to soak it again. Then you have to lay it out on the floor. Well, this is tra the traditional process to lay, lay it out on the floor, so the grain starts to sprout. Uh, you have to make sure that as those sprouts are coming out, they don't tangle up and form into a big uh, mess. Uh, you have to keep the grains separate by raking them. And then you have to kiln the malt to dry it just at the right time. And the level, the temperature and the length of time at which you expose the grain to that temperature is crucial in uh, killing the embryo, but not killing the enzymes. So we still have the enzymes in there to convert the starch to sugar. So all of those processes, for most of the history we've been doing them, they've really been the skill and judgment of the maltster with very little science behind it. There's a lot of science behind it now, but I just find it absolutely astonishing how we we figured all this stuff out but without the scientific uh, basis of knowledge that we now have. I completely agree. I thought it was just amazing. And tell us about the difference between the pale malts and the darker malts. That was really interesting also. Yeah. So as I said, if you, um, 
if you if you roast or kill the grain for too long, you kill the enzymes, uh, and there's no fermentable sugar left. Um, you've caramelised the sugar, and the enzymes aren't there to to convert the starch to sugar. But what you do get is some very interesting flavours. Anyone who's ever cooked knows that if you heat something and then you get caramelisation and you get the Maillard reaction, you're getting these deeper, richer, roasty flavours. And sometimes we want that in beer. So what we'll tend to do is, uh, what brewers will tend to do rather, is about 90% of the beer, of the malt that goes in beer is pale malt. Now, if you just make a beer out of pale malt, you're going to get like a, a really light pale ale or, or a lager. Uh, and then when you get a darker beer, you... You're adding maybe between 5 and 10% of these darker coloured malts that have not got any fermentable sugar in them, but they're adding a huge amount of flavour and character. So you get something as, as dark and rich as a stout, an imperial stout, which is incredibly dark and so full of flavour. That's coming from about 10% of the total malt that's in the beer, but it's just been roasted uh, and or, or, or kilned to a, to a really intense degree. Yeah, it's amazing how much skill the individual brewer must have. So let's move on to the water component. Again, this was another thing that blew my mind. Who knew water had such a huge effect on the flavor of the beer? Well, when when I do my pop quiz about what are the four ingredients of beer, water is usually the last one that people get. Uh, and you know, water is 95% of what's in your glass. Um, I think you can think of water as the medium in which the other ingredients are, are dissolved. You know, without water, you just got some grains and, and leaves in the grass in a glass. Um, but the type of water that you're using, the characteristics of the water, have a massive effect on the character of the beer. Uh, so I guess we all know about hard and soft water. Um, uh, if you get scaly buildup in your kettle and, and things like that. Um, so the hardness or softness of water uh, is very important. Also, the, um, the the acidity or alkalinity of the water. So water falls as as pure water, then it runs through the land. You know, when we draw it from wells or get it from springs, it could have been underground for anything from a few weeks to literally uh, thousands of years. Um, and the kind of soil or rock that the uh, that the water has flowed through gives it a lot of characteristics it picks up acidity or alkalinity from the soil and it also picks up mineral ions mineral deposits and all those things you know they're not really detectable to most of us if we were to try and taste the difference in just the water but they have a profound effect on the finished beer they uh, they enhance the other ingredients and bring out different things um uh, more alkaline water is better for uh, darker malts which create acidity so you get a kind of balance there um, if you get high elements of, of sulfates in your water it's going to be really really nice for pale ale which has got a lot of hops in it whereas it's going to make a lager very astringent so if you make a, a classic pilsner you want um, water with very little uh, sort of mineral deposits in it Again, this is something that we've only known for about 100, 150 years. Um, but what fascinates me about, I mean, it's, I find it the most difficult one of the four to talk about because I think you have to have really quite good knowledge of chemistry in order to completely understand it. Um, but because it varies so regionally, water is really the, the one out of the four ingredients that's really dictated what different beer styles are brewed in different places. It's the soil of the of the town where the brewery is that's really kind of had a big say on which types of beer work best there until we discovered all this stuff about water chemistry and we learned how to add salts and use reverse osmosis to take things out and get the water we want wherever we are in the world you know until we were able to do that the type of beer you could brew was pretty much based on the soil that you had 
And like with all the components in your book, these four main chapters that you have, you have incredibly fascinating stories about all of them. But I loved the story of the Burton Brewery. I mean, they went to war basically over their water. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just uh, Burton Water was was so great. They they knew they could make beer that traveled very well, but didn't know why. And uh, London was kind of the big brewing center. And then they started making India Pale Ale in Burton. That's where what we currently understand as IPA was was born. And no one knew why IPA worked in Burton better than anywhere else, but it certainly did. And so you got London brewers having to come up to uh, Burton and open kind of franchise breweries in Burton-on-Trent and ship the beer back down to London uh, because they couldn't brew the same beer in, with the same ingredients and the same recipe in the brewery in London. Um, so everybody was kind of saying, well, what is the secret? What is the secret? And Burton scientists eventually figured it out and said, it's the water. Here's the water. Cons- here's, here's the composition of the water. Here's the minerals we put in it. And brewers around the world basically said, well, thank you very much. We'll take that on board. We'll use that. And as soon as that started happening, you know, if you've got a brewer in San Diego or Colorado, they burtonize their water. They they add salts to it to make it the same, uh, con- con- to make, give it the same composition as Burton water. And so as soon as everyone else was doing this, Burton basically fell into decline and is now, you know, a very sorry shadow of the town it used to be. But yeah. <laughs> people there are just so, you know, kind of, formidable and belligerent. I think I'm not sure they care. <laughs> Sad story of globalization. And then your, so. your third component, the hops. Again, I learned so much. I had no idea that they were initially used as preservatives, not flavoring agents at all. Yeah. Well, I, I started off, I think for about the first 20 seconds I had the idea for this book, it was going to be a book about hops. And, and then I thought, why just hops? You know, everyone talks about hops. That's what people love in their beer. What about the other ingredients as well? And my plan was to then uh, write the book in four equal parts. So it was 25% on each of the four ingredients. And as soon as I started writing about hops, hops just took over. And the, the hops section is twice as long as any other section in the book. Um, because there's a magic about hops. I think there's there's science throughout the whole thing. But on top of the science, there's a real magic about hops, which remains uh, kind of hard to explain. And yeah, at the moment, we're we're really into hops because of their aroma uh, and their flavor-giving properties. This has only been the case for about the last 20 years. Before that, we thought of hops as hops also, apart from the aroma compounds, hops contain alpha acids. They're the source of bitterness in beer. And big brewers, before craft beer came along, big brewers, were when, were the, when they were buying hops, they were buying units of alpha acid. They really didn't care about anything else. And so the highest alpha acid hops were the ones that were most valued. And the alpha acids also have, uh, as you mentioned, this preservative quality. They have a disinfectant uh, quality. They, they keep bacteria out of beer. And so when you go back to when hops were first introduced, that bitterness that they give beer is an acquired flavor for a lot of people. Um, our, our palates are trained to think of bitterness as the taste of poison. Uh, and in a lot of places, hops met with great resistance, that, that flavor of that, that bitter bites that you get in hoppy beer. Um, but they realized that hops had this preservative property. Now, the other thing that has a preservative property is alcohol. So if you wanted beer to last, it had to be kind of high in alcohol, 9 10% ABV. To get the beer that high, you've got to put an awful lot of malted barley in there to get all that sugar to return it to alcohol. And so as soon as we knew that hops were a preservative as well, you could... Uh, 
make the beer less strong, so you could put less uh, in, fewer ingredients, you know, less malt in it, which meant it was cheaper to make, and because it was less strong, people could drink more of it. So hops are really behind the popularization of beer, all from that uh, that kind of disinfectant uh, property that it has. And the treatment of hops from the harvesting through the processing to their inclusion in fermentation is kind of analogous to that of the barley. It's, I mean, it's incredibly complicated. You have to be so careful with those little cones. And I'm not even sure what, what they are. I mean, are they a flower? Um, they're essentially a weed. Uh, they, they, are, they are flowers that you get on the... Uh, we call them cones, but they're, they're essentially flowers. Uh, they're kind of scaly, um, uh, green, quite quite waxy, and um, and the, the, all the time they're growing, they're developing these these alpha acid uh, compounds and these uh, essential oils compounds. Um, so if you want the, them to be fully ripe, you have to wait for them to be picked. Now, as soon the second that they're picked, they start to rot, uh, and you start to lose all that precious uh, aroma. If you if you're ever in a hop field at harvest time. The, the the air is full of these heady scents. They're really, really wonderful. But as soon as the hops are jostled, uh, agitated, picked, you do anything to them, and these the sacs that hold these uh, aromatic oils are bursting. Uh, if you if you get that incredible aroma in the air, that means it's no longer in the in the plant itself, and it's not going to be in your beer. So you're trying to get the hop. First thing you're trying to do is get the hop. Uh, as intact and as and as cosseted as safe as possible to the brewery. The second thing is, if you brew outside harvest time, uh, we need to dry the hops to pre- prevent them from rotting. Now, now that drying process takes another huge um, chunk of flavour away from them, but there's nothing we can do about that. Uh, and then we will preserve them dried. They may be made into pellets to make them more consistent. All the time, the analogy I used in the book was it's like holding a handful of sand. Uh, and every move you make, you're losing some grains of sand uh, through your fingers. Uh, and so when you get old hops that are a couple of years old, uh, they've got no aroma left. They still have that preservative property. A lot of Belgian beers deliberately use old hops because they don't want the hop aroma in the character of the beer, but they do want those preservative properties. Um, so it's a, a very difficult, as you say, and very uh, precious commodity. It's also the, the most expensive uh, crop in the world to to cultivate, and apparently, if I recall correctly, the biggest fields are in the Pacific Northwest. In America, yes, uh, there's slightly more in Germany, uh, and the Americans are kind of vying with Germany to get the world number one spot. I think it varies year to year depending on harvest, but the Pacific Northwest, which I think is is America's uh, uh, fruit basket, really, uh, just has these incredible big hop fields. When I was researching the book. I visited one farm uh, which has a greater acreage of hops than the whole UK hop industry put together. Uh, the, the scale of these things is is enormous. And the, the terroir, the climate of the Pacific Northwest, uh, gives these hops a particular strong and pungent character uh, with aromas that you don't get in hops from other parts of the world. So if I got hops down the road from me in Kent in southern England, uh, they're kind of peppery, loamy, uh, slightly earthy and quite subtle uh, hops in the Pacific Northwest could be piney, uh, redolent of citrus fruits, tropical fruits, things like that. And if you use a lot of them and you get these intense flavors in beer, for my, for, in my opinion, that's what's driven the craft beer revolution is people who don't think that they like the taste of beer or the smell of beer. They smell a beer with these hops for the first time and they go, wow, I didn't know 
beer could smell or taste like that. That's incredible. And this is capturing imaginations of beer drinkers around the world now. That was exactly my experience after I read your book. I did a little hops exploring <laughs> myself. And for in our last few minutes, we can get to my favorite little creature, the yeast. And I just yes. love how these guys can turn sugars into all kinds of other compounds, really, not just alcohol. But tell us a little bit about what they do in the beer. Yeah, so when they so yeast exists to to eat sugar uh, and the byproducts it creates as a result of that, uh, alcohol and carbon dioxide. That's the basic process of fermentation. Uh, it does that in bread, it does that in wine, uh, anything else. And in beer, as well as that, and and this is the bit that often gets overlooked. Uh, yeast does create a lot of flavor compounds. Uh, some of those. Uh, uh, undesirable to, to many palates. Uh, others are, are really intriguing and really, uh, really wonderful. It, it's it's why it's why um, alcoholic cider doesn't taste of apple juice or wine doesn't taste of, of grapes. Uh, the yeast is adding these complex flavors in uh, on top of what was there to start with. Uh, and in beer, these flavors give it this this extra richness, it's this extra depth. Um, different strains of yeast will have different characteristics uh, we've done a, brewers did a lot of work in the 19th century to try and minimize the impact of yeast because it wasn't always predictable and it might add flavors that the brewer didn't want in there and now that process has been perfected you know every big commercial beer brand is using uh laboratory cultivated yeasts which uh, the flavor profile is very rigorously controlled brewers and drinkers are going well okay that's fine but I wonder what the old beer was like. I wonder what wild beer was like. I wonder what happens if we use some different yeast. And so this is the new level of experimentation now where we, it's, it's very dangerous if you don't want the yeast to contaminate um, a brewer that's brewing kind of mainstream beers. But uh, it's it's a totally new frontier. For all that we've now learned about beer, this is one area in particular where we're at the very start of the journey in terms of learning uh, how it works and, and what it likes and, um, and and what it can contribute. And I guess that's a fantastic place to end it. We're out of time. And I want to thank you so much, Pete Brown, for joining us. Well, thank you. Yes, of course. And we I live in a beer brewing mecca in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm sure many of our listeners will be delighted to investigate your book. And I will link to your book on our website. So thank you again. Good luck with your beer exploration. That was That was Pete Brown rhapsodizing about the miracle of beer making, but describing some of the amazing and often not well understood science therein. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett. This week's show is produced off-site by Joel Parker and engineered in the studio by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Anjel Shang. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Luke Bryan. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to our features. And you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.